turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. If you're using a blue pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 952. Once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You may be seated, and let's take a few moments in silence to reflect upon God's word. Every year, my daughter, Morgan, uh, took ballet lessons from kindergarten, five years old, to senior in high school, 18 years old. And uh, as the parent, you kind of sit in the lobby, and they have a big window, you know, that you can look and see what's happening inside. And I noticed every year, certain things happen every single time. It didn't matter if she was five. It didn't matter if she was 15. When you came into the room, the first thing you did is you worked on these five basic positions, which are called position one, position two, (laughs) position three. I won't try to demonstrate that for you here today. But every year, it didn't matter uh, what year you were, you, you, you do these basic positions, and then you have some basic moves, sort of some foundational dance moves if you were uh, in ballet, and they had sort of funny French names, the, the releve, the plie, the frappe, <laughs> the tendu, it kind of sounded like an order from Starbucks, you know, can I have the releve, plie, frappe with... Double shot of Tondu. That's kind of what it sounded like. But you have all these things, and you have all these movements, and what would happen, again, every single year, you'd have the teacher up front and the, and the student trying to do or mimic the, the position of the teacher, and when they would get into a particular position and hold the position, if it wasn't right, the teacher did this every time. They would come up, and they would put their hands physically on my daughter or whoever the student was, and they would say, not like that, like this. And they would turn their hands or turn their feet or turn their head, whichever way to say, I need you to be just like this. So even if you were just a little bit off, they would physically take your hand or take your head, and they would move it every time. And then we'd go back to a different position and say, let's go back to that position and see if you can hold that perfectly this time. Now, now, why was it they didn't just get that the first time? I mean, I thought my daughter was pretty smart, and she seemed to catch on, but, 
But again, at the beginning of every year, she would do a position and the teacher would have to come in and say, no, it's, it's not quite like that. It's a little bit more like this and, and change. Why didn't they just say, oh, it's like this, and then the next time they do it, it was it's exactly like that? Why couldn't they get that the first time? What's the answer to that question? It's called muscle memory. Your muscles actually have memory. And they have a way of being out or whatever the position is. And your muscles have to develop a, a new habit, a new pattern. And, 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 and if you don't practice, you, you go back to an old pattern. And so the teacher every year has to come back and say, oh, no, it's not quite like that. It looks a lot like that, but it's like this. They have to physically place their hands on you to say it's just like this. Now, everyone here who's done any kind of sport, ever tried to learn uh, an instrument, anybody who's tried to be a dancer, everybody knows this, do you not? I played football, and you get in a three-point stance, and every year the coaches say, you know, not like that, like this. And they physically put their hands on you and say, do it like this. It's the same way. It's the same way if you're trying to learn a guitar. You have to have muscle memory. You have to get used to being in a certain pattern. You have to develop new habits and new pattern. And in order to do that, somebody has to place their hands on you and say, not that way, this way. And it has to happen over and over and over until you become new with a new pattern and a new habit. Now, last week, we took a look at the Apostle Paul coming to a city uh, called Corinth. And in Corinth, they had particularly well-established habits and patterns. In Corinth, they loved power and they loved position. That was a habit. That was a pattern. If you were living in the culture of Corinth, if you were immersed in the culture of Corinth, your just habit, your natural pattern was to, to love power, to love prominence, to love prosperity. Another thing that you, you, you were immersed in in the culture of Corinth was competition and hunger for admiration. It was just in the DNA. You just wanted to be competitive. And one of the reasons you wanted to be competitive is you wanted to win. And the reason you wanted to win is so everyone would admire you, your skill, your ability, your ability to succeed or perform. This particular culture also had a, a thirst for entertainment and pleasure. You didn't have to try. You just had to live in the culture. Can you imagine a culture thirsty for entertainment and pleasure? Yes. It's just part of the habit. It's just part of the, the DNA. And they were very religious but not very moral. That, that was the pattern that Paul came into when he came into Corinth. And so he comes in and he says there's something totally different. And he introduces the gospel to this group in Corinth. And some of them miraculously respond to the gospel. And he stays there. He plants a church. And for 18 months he preaches and teaches. He's the teacher who's in front of the class who's saying, yeah, yeah, not like this, but like that. And he does this for 18 months and then he goes away. And what happens to the church at Corinth? What happens to their dance? Well, it begins to get a little frayed. It begins to, a little get, begins to get a little shaggy. They, they go back to old patterns. See, they're still in the culture, 
They still got Corinth in their soul. They still got Corinth in their bone. And when the teacher leaves the classroom for an extended period of time, they just go back to old patterns. And so the church at Corinth had gone back to some really old patterns. And basically the letter of Corinthians is the teacher, Paul, coming back saying, i got to get my hands back on you. You've got some really bad patterns that you're, you're bringing in from the culture that we said, hey, not like this, like that. It, but when I left, you, you went back. And so Paul, the teacher, he's coming back in. He's physically putting his hands on this, this uh, congregation in Corinth to say, it's got to be like this, not like, like that. And so these habits are what tune our bodies towards what we love. That's what habits are. Habits are things that tune your body to what you love. You get up in the morning, just think, what does your body love in the morning? One of two things, a little more sleep, right? So what do you have the habit of? You hit the snooze button or you get coffee. You got to do one of those two things. And you have a habit of it. You don't think about it. It just automatically happens. And your habits are tuning your body to what you love. And the people in Corinth had worldly loves and their habits were just tuned that way. So it took a long time to break those old habits in the people of Corinth. And so they didn't have enough muscle memory to resist when Paul left. And so Paul comes back in and he, and he puts his hands on them. And you'll notice in these first nine verses you have a greeting. First three verses, and then you have some thanksgiving that Paul gives, verses 4 through 9. And, and in, in this greeting and, and in this thanksgiving, it's not like, um, uh, you know, like, like the, uh, the, the beginning of a book where it might have a preface. That you would just go, yeah, this isn't the real part of the book. Let's flip to the real part of the book. Uh, if you've been given a reading assignment, you're like, I don't want to read the preface. That's more pages. I just got to get to the, you know, chapter one. No, the preface here is strategic. Paul's already applying his hands to the congregation in Corinth in this greeting and in this Thanksgiving. And so I want to just look at the way Paul makes some adjustments in his greeting, chapter verses one through three. And then I want us to look at how Paul lays a foundation in his words of thanksgiving, 4 through 9. And this is the foundation that lays the, it's a foundation that's for the rest of the book. In other words, every time I give a sermon on, on Corinthians, I should come back and say, let's remember this foundation. Because this is the beginning of how he's going to address these particular issues where they've gotten shaggy. They've gotten out of line with the gospel that he has to put his hands back on. So first, let's look at these three adjustments. In this greeting, Paul is called by the will of God to be an apostle, an apostle of Christ Jesus to our brother and our brother Sosthenes. He's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth. He's writing to those who are sanctified in Christ. And they're called to be saints together with all those in every place who are calling upon the name of Jesus Christ. First adjustment Paul has to make is he, he says, I'm Paul called by the will of God. I'm an, an apostle. And that means he's a special messenger. The word apostle here is one that's specially chosen for a task. And Paul is specifically chosen to give the gospel to the Gentiles, people like 
who are in Corinth. Acts chapter 9, you can read about that special commission that Jesus gives him. And he's especially uh, gifted to bring the truth about God to the Gentiles. And so he does. He brings it to Corinth. He talks about Jesus. People respond. But then after Paul leaves, remember the culture, the culture of power, of being in the first position, of being competitive, being on top. When Paul leaves, when the teacher leaves, the people begin to, they begin to question Paul's authority. Hmm. I mean, why, why, who died and made him king? I mean, why, why were we listening to him? And, and what happened is they got a judgmental attitude about their teacher. Oh, I don't know. Maybe he didn't have it right. Maybe he didn't say it right. The people in Corinth were really impressed by great speakers, and Paul wasn't a particularly gifted speaker. And they're like, yeah, he didn't really say it that well, and we didn't want to say it when he was in, when he was in front of us, but we all knew he wasn't a great speaker. So we kind of judge him. We judge his style. We judge his, his content. And so Paul, in his opening statement, he has to assert his apostleship. He has to assert his authority that he's not just a messenger sent by some group of people. He's a messenger sent by what? The will of God. He's coming out of the will of God to give them this message. And the reason Paul's asserting his authority is not because he's sort of some egocentric guy saying, I've got to get back in there so everybody thinks I'm in the spotlight. It's not because he needs the term or the title of apostle. No, Paul's concerned about the gospel. And he knows he spent time in Corinth. He knows their attitude. Their attitude of wanting to be on top. Of looking down. And he knows what's happening in this, in this church. He's familiar with the old Corinthian habit. Of sitting in judgment. Of having the final word. So what's at stake is the Gospels, the, 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 the Gospel. The, the Corinthians are setting themselves up at the, as the judge. First of Paul, then of what Paul says, and then of the Bible of the whole. Oh, he's given a word, but we get to be the judge of that word. We get to sit on top of the word and say, yeah, this is the part we like and this is the part we don't like. Paul was good here. Paul wasn't good there. And I want you to hear the terrible danger of that. Not just in Corinth, but in your own soul. That we could become like Thomas Jefferson who famously cut the parts out of the New Testament he didn't like or believed in. There's the Thomas Jefferson Bible. It's all cut up. And it just, he just thinks that this can't be true or this, isn't, this doesn't fit his culture. So he cuts up his Bible and says, these are the parts I like. Exactly what Paul's worried about for the people in Corinth. That they would be, they would be the supreme judge over God's word. And that is a very big danger for us in our culture. To say, well, what Paul's saying in the first century just doesn't fit my culture. We're not like that anymore. And so we set ourselves up as a judge saying, well, we get to decide the parts of the Bible that we like and the parts of the Bible that we don't like. It's a great, great danger. And it happens in our own hearts. So Paul's immediately seeing the danger and he's applying his hands. I'm, I'm an apostle by the will of God. Guys, you've got to listen to what the Lord is saying through me and you don't get to be the judge. Number two... He is addressing the church of God at Corinth. 
right away he wants to remind them who they belong to. They belong to God. And the reason why he's doing that is because as soon as Paul left, other speakers came in. And they were very impressed with these speakers. Peter came by, Apollos came by, other speakers came by, and you won't believe what happened. Christian groupies started happening. Can you imagine this? I know, just stretch your imagination to try to think about it. That certain people came by who were really good speakers and had really written really good books. And instead of people lining up under Jesus, they began to line up under a speaker, under a preacher, under a famous evangelist. And they weren't telling people again about Jesus. They were telling people about the great speaker. And they became groupies of this speaker. Now imagine today. Again, stretch your imagination where people would just follow one person as a speaker. Read all their books. Tell everybody how many times they've heard him speak in person. All to what end? To make themselves look super spiritual. To get behind the person everybody thinks is popular at the moment. And do you see what happens? Spotlight moves off Jesus and on to the people. And Paul sees it, and what does he say? I'm writing to the church of, of God. This isn't the Corinthian church. This isn't Paul's church. It isn't Peter's church. It's not Apollo's church. It's God's church. It's God's church. And everybody needs to be reminded we're all lining up underneath God. We're not, under, we're not identifying. We're not getting our identity from someone else. We're not following after man. And then again, he writes to those who are sanctified, meaning set apart. I'm set apart from the culture. Again, Paul's applying his hands, and here's what he sees. He sees the people bringing the culture into the church. These souls have experienced decades of immersion in this cultural corruption. And there needs to be constant pressure applied because if they don't, if he doesn't apply it constantly, the culture is like a tidal wave. It, it's, it just comes into the church. And they're having a hard time being in the world and not being of the world. One of the commentators said this, The problem was not that they were in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in them. Too much of, too much of the culture is still in our soul, in our bones. And so if we don't have somebody holding us, what happens is when they let go, they just go back to that same way. In Corinth, you had some group of people that were happy to attend the church, happy to refer to themselves as Christians. They just didn't want to let go of the world. They were the kind of people who posted Bible verses on their first century Facebook page. But everybody knew on the weekends they were at the temple of Aphrodite. Fulfilling the lust of their own hearts and souls. Imagine just the division of a soul. You've got somebody saying, I'm happy to be in church. I'm posting Bible verses. I'm fulfilling my own needs my own way. Paul sees their souls splitting apart. And he's saying, guys, you can't hold on to those two things. I've got to get your hand off of the world and back on to Jesus. 
For many, following Jesus hadn't become their life. He was just an attachment. So this, this one point of sanctification, we're, we're, I, could be a, I could make this a whole sermon series. I just sat for a few minutes and thought, what if I made this a whole sermon? This is what you do if you're a pastor. You sit there and you have this one point and think, oh, you just get revved up with this one point and thought, I could just make this a whole sermon series. And as I thought about this, this, is this, this would be the title of my sermon series, How to Get Corinth Out of Your Soul. So you might be saying, Paul, I feel that. I feel that magnetism of the world. I've still got a lot of Corinth. I've got a lot of the American culture still in my soul. How do we get Corinth out of our souls? Here's my subtitle. The new, this is so great. You're going to want to write this down. <laughs> the new habits and practices we must immerse ourselves in in order to dance through the world in a different way. How do we get Corinth out of our souls so that, that we immerse ourselves in different practices so then we dance in a totally different way. It's like we're listening to a, a new stream of music that the world can't seem to quite hear. Chapter 1, you must have a teacher. You must have someone who can come into your life. This has to be a real person. It can't just be a book. Who will say, you know what, not that way, this way. You're going to have such limited success of just doing it on your own. That's why no matter what, that's, that's why the greatest golfer right now, whoever that is, he has a coach. The greatest tennis player, whoever he or she may be is, they have a coach. Because they can't see things about themselves. And if you don't have someone or a group of people around you who say, I keep hearing you say this, or I keep, no, you do this, not this, that. I've got to put my hands on you. And parents, this is a major role for you to tell your children, yeah, I know that's the way they do it at school, but we don't do it that way. We do it this way. And you have to apply your hands over and over and over. It's not a one-time application for those of you who just have newborns. <laughs> it's not a one-time application. You constantly have to go back. So one of the questions I would just have, do you have somebody in your life who, who you've said, hey, you can put your hands on me and make adjustments? If you don't, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying you're, you're, you're going a lot slower. You're growing a lot slower than you could because you just can't see what's happening in your own soul. So right away on this greeting, Paul's already, he's already attacking problems. If you're in Corinth, you hear it. You know it. And then he goes on to this story, which I'm going to read for us again in verses 4 through 9. And I'm just going to highlight certain pieces of it because you probably picked up on the theme in the first reading. But as you think through this, just who's the center of the story? Paul's reminding them of their story, of their foundation. To the church of God that is in Corinth, that is sanctified by Christ. To those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace comes from Christ. You're enriched by him, by Christ. Your testimony is about Christ. You're waiting for the revealing of Christ. The last day is about 
Christ, called into the fellowship of Christ. Who's the center of the story? Christ. See, he's trying to say, guys, this is so critical. This is the foundation. Everything you are in your past, in your present, in your future, it's all about Jesus. And if we don't have that as the the bedrock of our belief, then we're going to have trouble. If you miss the main character of the story, you're not going to understand how the story is supposed to unfold. And unfortunately in Corinth, and we can appreciate this, if you lived in Corinth, you were the center of the story. And everything revolved around you. So you see the difficulty Paul has, the challenge he has to get people who are living just for themselves to say, hey, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And as soon as Paul takes his hands off of, it, off of them, they just wander back out and say, oh, I'd like to make it about me a little bit more. And so he, he just does this very quickly. He, he reminds them of their story. Their past, present, and future are all wrapped up into Jesus. Verse 4, Paul gives gives thanks because he knows the grace of God was given to them in Christ Jesus. He's, he's strategically reminding them that their story didn't start with themselves. And we know that the story didn't even start with Paul. The story starts with grace. And when does that grace begin? When does the, God, the, God, the grace of God begin in your life? Ephesians 1.4, the grace of God started moving to you, toward you when? Before the foundations of the world. Your story is much longer than you had imagined. God was moving toward you much from, from a much farther distance than you imagined. You might say, well, I started feeling it at some point. That's fine, but God's grace was coming to you from before the foundations of the earth. And he's reminding them of this. He's saying your story is embedded in Christ. And every story of every believer starts with God, and it, it starts before the foundations of the earth. He's the central character in their past. He's their, the central character in their, in their present. Verses 5 through 7, the testimony of Christ was confirmed in them when they heard about Jesus. When they heard about God sending the Son who, who lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, who substituted himself for us, who took our penalty on the cross, who proved that he had power over death by his resurrection. We, when they heard the gospel, they responded. Their testimony is about Christ. And look, they were enriched in Christ in all speech, knowledge, and gifts. So everything they have comes from Jesus. Now, you would think it would be difficult to be proud when you can't take credit for anything. Well, all my past, well, that's Jesus. All my presence, well, that's Jesus. But unfortunately, if you live in a culture that you live with pride, it just leaks in. It leaks in, and then you start saying, well, I must be super spiritual because God's given me these gifts. And the gifts don't point to the giver. The gifts point to the person. And as I was thinking about that, I had read another book recently, and I want to just describe this story because this is how it happens today. A guy in his 20s 
I'm sorry if you're in, 20, in your 20s. I'm not pointing to you. But a guy in his 20s wearing skinny jeans, a plaid shirt, and a beanie came into a coffee shop carrying a heavy book. He ordered, then he sat at a table near the middle of the room, and he started arranging his book and his latte so he could take a picture of them on his phone. He spent five minutes doing this. I'm certain it was five minutes because I clocked him. He tried capturing the image with the book on its side next to the latte, then with a few pages open with the latte in front. Then he attempted several shots with the coffee cup on top of the book, and then he closed his photo shoot with a few shots of the book in his hand. He tapped on the phone screen for a while, editing and posting the the photo online. Finally, he put his phone down and he opened the book. I swear he looked at the book for, all, for no more than 45 seconds before he closed the book, pulled out his phone again, checking to see what kind of response he had gotten from his post. And here's the best part. I finally noticed the title of the book. It's called The Doctrine of God by John Frame. A thick book about the primacy of God's word was being used as a prop in a social media post. This happens all the time. You and I, we're in a culture that everything props us up, even if it's God. And we use God to make ourselves look great. And it just slips in in ways you don't even see how how pervasive it is. God is the God of our past. He's the God of our present. He's the God of our future. Everything is coming to the revealing of Christ. And all of our gifts and our speech and our knowledge that are supposed to be pointing toward Christ and not ourselves. We know what happens to gifts and speech and knowledge. Because we know 1 Corinthians chapter 13, most famous chapter in the whole book. Verse 8, as for prophecies, speech, they will pass away. As for tongues, gifts, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but on the day when Jesus is revealed, we shall see him face to face. So whatever gifts you have, they're meant to point to Jesus. And the central character in your story, which is going to matter for every issue Paul's going to click off through the book of Corinthians, is that Jesus is at the center. And if you put yourself at the center, when he starts addressing those things, it's going to be very difficult. But when he starts addressing them and you say, no, Jesus is at the center and I need an adjustment. I need my heart adjusted. I need my habits adjusted. It's going to be a whole lot easier because you're going to be adjusting yourself to your creator, the one who made you, the one who molded you, who loves you. So my question this morning, do you know the areas in your life you need adjustment? If we went on an expedition of your soul and a group came back this morning and said, I'd like to give a, a report on 
Rob's, the condition of Rob's soul tonight. Would you know what the report would say? Secondly, do you have somebody who's willing to put their hands on you and say, not that way, this way? And do you know your whole story is wrapped up underneath the great story of Christ? Let's pray together. Lord, this, this letter uh, will be a mighty challenge to everyone here. But a much greater challenge is if we don't really see how much of the culture is still in our souls, still in our bones. And that kindly you're sending the Apostle Paul from 2,000 years ago to make adjustments on our own soul. And so my prayer for, for myself and for all of us that was, is that we would just be moldable. That, that through a sermon, through a conversation, when, when you gently but firmly put your hands on the way we think or habits that we have, and you say to us by the power of your spirit, say, not that way, that we wouldn't resist. That we'd be thankful that you have kindly year after year come back and visit us and say, yeah, not that way, this way. Place your hands on our soul. We pray in Jesus' name.